0: This morning we're going to be in a, a passage that is very pointed, very sharp. It is one of those passages where Jesus takes off the gloves and lets it rip in love, but uh, it's a warning passage in, in the, the remaining verses of Luke 11. And so I was thinking, well, what do you title a, a, a sermon like this? And then I thought, pump the brakes. That's perfect. That's it. That's what I feel like. This is this is a warning for us this morning and it's kind of like if you're heading down a, a dangerous path, this sermon can be for you a, a pump the brakes. Hold on. Wait, let's reevaluate. Are we heading the right direction here? Are things the way they ought to be? Or do we need to re-reorient our lives? Maybe make a radical change. It could be that some even in this room this morning experience the Spirit of God pumping the brakes in your soul and saying, listen now, listen close. This warning is for you. It may be. I want to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. There's a a passage where uh, this kind of sets the tone for all of Luke 11. Jesus has cast this this demon out of this man who was mute, and as soon as he cast out this demon, the man celebrated this deliverance and began to speak and 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 shout and testify to the freedom that had been accomplished in the power of Christ. You know, there were people in the crowd who were in awe, but there were people in the crowd who I, I've labeled the antagonists. They accused Jesus of, of casting out the demon in the power of Beelzebub, or Satan, the prince of demons, the lord of the flies, which is the dumbest accusation, I think, ever leveled against Jesus, but uh, Jesus dealt with that, we, we kind of covered that a lot the previous week, and then there were others who said, uh, you know what, Jesus, uh, that's, you know, that's great, but we want to see a sign from heaven, we want to see you accomplish a sign from heaven, And the more I studied that that sign from heaven part, the more I began to think it's fascinating because it's as if they're not happy with the power that was set on display when he cast the demon out. They wanted more. They wanted something specifically in their minds. You know, a sign from heaven, Jesus, this is what we would prefer. Maybe you could call fire down and, and burn something up. Right? Or maybe you could walk over to the Sea of Galilee, put your foot in and split it in two, or you know, something like that, then we would believe. Do what we want, where we want it, how we want it, in, in, in the terms that we ascribe, and then we'll believe. These are the skeptics. We've got to feel how foolish this is. For them to suggest, to, to stand back with their arms crossed and say, yeah, it's just not enough. I mean, Jesus has almost eradicated illness from Israel at this point. He, he has healed masses and masses of people. He has cast demons out. He has walked on the water, as we saw last week. He's all of these miraculous displays of healing and, and, and deliverance. All pointing to the reality that He is, in fact, God Himself. Sent by the Father, the second member of the Trinity, the Son, incarnate in the flesh, on this earth, in our midst, speaking the words of life. But it's not enough for them. Now, let's continue on. In verse 29 is where we pick it up this morning. I titled this, these verses, Something Greater is Here. Something Greater is Here. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Okay, and all of us are kind of like, okay, the sign of Jonah, he says he's, he says he's not going to do what they want him to do. They're trying to turn him into a genie, right? And, and Jesus is never going to be your personal genie. He's Jesus. He's the king of kings, right? We bow before him. He doesn't just do our bidding. But he says, I'm, uh, the only sign you're going to get this evil and wicked generation is the sign of Jonah. And so instantly, We're transported back to the book of Jonah. And let me just give you a crash course in Jonah. Jonah was a very strange prophet of God. He was was like the the last prophet you want to be like, okay? God called him to go and preach to the Ninevites, and he said, "Uh, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going the opposite direction. I don't want the Ninevites to experience God's grace and salvation. That's the Assyrians, they're our worst enemy. I'm not going to go. And so he goes to Joppa, gets on a ship. We got to see the port that last year where he actually loaded up on a ship right there. Uh, The Lord uh, was like, um, you forget who I am, Jonah. I sent you to Nineveh, and that's where you're going to go. So the storm comes. The sailors freak out. They cast the lots and the Lord sovereignly identifies Jonah as the problem, who's, he's trying to sleep in the, in the belly of the ship, uh, trying to drown his, his concern away with sleep. It doesn't work. Finally, they, they throw him overboard, and a gigantic fish swallows him, takes him down into the depths, and he is in the heart of the sea for three days, in this huge fish, okay? He's kept alive by God. He's not you know, eaten up or chomped up like a, like a shark. This, this big fish takes him down, and then after three days, he is spit out of a fish. He would have been in kind of rough shape. His skin was probably really white, and, and, uh, and you know, the acid and stuff would have made him really white and, and weak, and he's probably really smelled awful. And here he is. He repents in the depths for his disobedience to the Lord and God shows him grace and so he goes to Nineveh, finally. Reluctant. He's the reluctant prophet. He preaches a very short sermon and relays how uh, the Lord basically grabbed his rebellion and turned him around and brought him against his will to preach to the people he didn't want to see saved but in fact were saved the entire city repents at his preaching. How does Jonah respond? He gets angry that the Lord would show them grace and mercy. And he pouts on a hillside. He sits under the plant and the Lord gives him shade and then the Lord eats up his shade and then the book ends. And you're just like, well, what was that? What an amazing prophet. So Jesus says, The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And and we're all saying, okay, what, what part of Jonah is the sign he speaks of? And Luke doesn't give us as much help here as Matthew gives us. Matthew gives us a little bit more to go with. Let me show you in Matthew 12, verse 40. Jesus says it this way. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, the sign of Jonah. Jesus is referring to the work that he came to this earth to accomplish. His willing offering up of himself to be crucified and then buried for three days and then raised. That is the sign of Jonah that he speaks of. That's the sign that is going to be given. The sign of all signs, as it were. In fact, if you think about the sign of Jonah, Jonah was just a a shadow. Jonah didn't die. He was just in a fish. He was reluctant to bring salvation. Jesus actually lays his life down joyfully for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, longing, excited to see those who place their faith in him saved. That's the sign of Jonah. Jesus brings the experience of Jonah and he blows it up into living color. Massive revival, massive salvation will be accomplished through this Jesus. He goes on to say this in verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon And then listen, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater. What an awesome thing to hear from Jesus, right? Jesus, the one who is preeminent over all, whatever wisdom Solomon had sourced itself from him. Whatever glory and esteem Solomon knew was a a candle next to the sun. The king of kings and the lord of lords. Who is this queen of the south? Well, we learn in the Old Testament as Solomon's reign was, was, was increasingly impressive and his finances grew and his wisdom was renowned, the word traveled abroad and people heard. And this queen of Sheba, who was probably down in Ethiopia, heard about the renown of Solomon and said, you know what, these reports are true. I will pack up and go on a great journey, a long distance travel to go and seek him out. I will do what I need to do to go and see him. And she did. She traveled all the way to Jerusalem. She was impressed by his his wisdom and his riches and the blessing of God on his life. Why would Jesus say this here? Well, you have a crowd of people, some who believe, but many who are like this. Hmm, I don't know, Jesus. I'm just not convinced. Yeah, that's impressive. I mean, you did something. We can't deny it, but uh, we need more. You see what he's saying? The queen of Sheba herself is going to rise up at the day of judgment and pronounce condemnation on you hard-hearted people? What more do you need? She had so much less. And yet, in the confidence of the reports that she heard, she sought him out. She went to great distance, put herself in great peril to find Solomon and seek him out. These people are hard-hearted in unbelief. They stand by, and they say, oh, we just need another sign. We need need the kind of sign that would really, really seal the deal for us. Queen of Sheba will say, how dare you? How small a thought that is. Jesus goes on, and he said this. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then he says, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, the reluctant prophet who, who was angered at their salvation, put yourself in the shoes of those who are hearing from the Son of God, with their own ears and in hard-hearted unbelief, closing their ears, shutting their eyes. Not enough. We won't believe. We just won't accept it. The preacher of preachers is standing in their midst and they pass judgment. They say, it's just not enough. It's as if Jesus is saying, do you realize what you have? Do you realize what you have? Now, I confess that there's been times in my life where I have been a little jealous of these crowds. What would it be like to be able to follow Jesus, to see him, to, to, to witness these, these miracles, to hear him teach in the first person, just to hear his words, Did they realize what they had? I wonder if the halls of church history would would call to us. Now, everybody just grab your Bible, okay? Grab your Bible, just hold it up. Hold it up, there you go. You got your iPhone, Larry. Okay, okay. Now look at that and ask yourself the question, do you realize what you have? You see that? Everybody with an ESV is just like, oh, my goodness. Okay, you can put them down. you got your weightlifting in for the day. Do you realize, friends, what we have? We've got four Gospels, four eyewitness testimonies of the teaching of Christ. We've got the work of all of the Scriptures, the full canon from beginning to end. We've got the full revelation of his prophecy. We know what the end is going to be before it takes place. We are spoiled. We're spoiled. And so before we judge these men too strictly, we have to look inside and ask the question, do we treasure this book as we ought? I don't think we do. I feel my own heart lacking when it comes to the treasure that we have here, the gift of His Word, the the absolute lavish blessing that we have in the gift of God's Word, His holy living Word. We can hear Jesus with our eyes. We can hear the prophets with our eyes. We, we can hear the voice of God as we read His Word. Do you realize what you have, friends? What is more important than that? Oh, you don't understand, Pastor. My mornings are busy. I just don't have time to be consistently in the Word. Well, I think you do. I think you do. If you realize what you have. What would Jesus say to us today? What would the Queen of Sheba say to us today? What would the men of Nineveh say to us today about the, the, the wealth of riches and access to the truth of God that we have in the pages of this living word? Hmm. We should all be convicted. There's always more. There's always more. There's, there's more to delight, more to discover, more time, more opportunity. More to learn. Um, My goal is not to put a guilt trip on you. My goal is to call us to to woo our hearts to the treasure of the Word. Hmm. Let's keep going. Verse 17. No, it's not verse 17. I don't know why it says that. I didn't get that right. It's verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, you've got to just ask the question, what, where, how does the flow go here? Jesus is talking about the queen of Sheba, the men of Nineveh, and then he's talking about a light. He's using this, this small little illustration here, and you're like, okay, what's the connection? How's, how's he moving? I think as Andre said a number of weeks ago, this is not... A reference to the light that we're called to shine. Now, we are called to shine. And no, we're not called to hide it under a a bushel. No. I'm going to let my little light shine. Was it our thumb that we used? Or our finger? You remember that kid's song? You guys do that? That must have been my Baptist roots. Don't let Satan it out. Love that part. That's not what we're talking about here, though. We're talking about the light The light of Christ. Jesus is referring to himself. He's the lamp here. He's saying, listen, it's not like the the light is, is in the basement here. I'm standing in your midst. I'm speaking to the crowds. This is on the stage of history. This is out in the open. I have been all over Israel speaking, teaching, healing, Proclaiming, shining. The, the light is shining. It's not in doubt. It's not a question of light. It's a question of sight. It's what Jesus is saying. Why are your arms crossed? Why are you accusing me of of casting out demons in the power of Satan. Why do you need more miracles when I've literally just shown you something you've never seen before? The signs of heaven are all around and your arms are still folded. What's wrong? It's not that the light is failing to shine. It's that your eyes are closed. It's that you refuse to see it. It's a question of sight. You see this by the next verse. Look at how he goes on. Oh, let me just share this real quick from John 8. Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. Jesus called himself the light of the world. He is referring to himself in this. The the, the question is, will they follow? Will they place their faith in him? Will they obey him, trust him, look to him, or will they harden their hearts and reject him? He says this, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. The eye, he says, is is the place where the light is to come in. Now, he's speaking spiritually here. If your eyes are shut, you're not going to allow that light in to pierce the darkness inside of you. Hmm. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And then he says this. This is the heart of this whole passage. This is the warning that has all to do with everything we've covered and where we're going. Listen close. Therefore, he speaks, and you just imagine his eyes making contact with all of these people. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Be warned. That's possible. It's possible to be totally convinced that the light inside of you is actually light when it's not, when it's darkness. Hmm. It's interesting how self-righteousness and self-deception go hand in hand. The greatest challenge for those in this day and in our day To the salvation of Christ was self-righteousness hey Jesus we are not the poor miserable blind and oppressed (laughs) I mean that's cool that you're helping out those people but what about us the good people you know the religious people the, the the righteous people don't you have some encouragement for us the healthy ones. He says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Oh, what do you mean by that, Jesus? I mean, aren't you impressed with with our righteousness? Look at the light in us. And his warning goes out. Be careful. Self-righteousness was the definition of the Pharisees. It was the opioid of religion in this day that the Pharisees had propagated this list of do's and don'ts it was performance moralistic religion it's dangerously possible to sit in this church and to be convinced that you have the light inside of you when in fact there is no light it's just dark It is dangerously possible, friends, to to walk through life and kind of keep track of things that you're doing that are quote unquote good and look to those things for assurance that you're going to be okay. Who is good in this room? Who is good? Apart from Christ, the answer is no one. No one is good all have turned aside. There's none who do good. No, not one, Romans 3 says. On our own, nothing good is in me. I cannot merit salvation. I am never righteous enough to be qualified for life. I stand condemned, and so do you. We're sinners, friends. We're not good people. We're we're rebels at heart by instinct and by choice, twice condemned. Now, when Jesus Christ hits the scene, all of that changes. All of that changes. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the deepest thing about you is no longer sin. You are made new. You are a new creation. The deepest thing about you then is what? The righteousness of Christ. That's what happens. So I'm staring out this morning at saints sanctified in Christ. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus are positionally brought into this place of, of Perfection in his righteousness. We are given his obedience. Everywhere we disobeyed is paid in full. Everywhere that he obeyed is mine in full. And then we just live out of that place to try to be consistent with who we are. Sanctification is the process of becoming who you are in Jesus Christ, righteous. I <laughs> said, one obey, Lord. Like your son obeyed, help me, help me. And so at my funeral, all praise and glory for anything worthy or good that I ever did does not stick on me. It goes straight there to Jesus. It's for his glory, it's his work, it's his goodness. Moralistic religion will send you to the fires of hell it has never saved anyone. No one has ever been saved by trying to be good enough for God. It's laughable. But entire religions are built upon that and there's scores of people, millions today, who throw themselves at this work over and over and over, convinced that they have light when they don't. That was true of the crowd that Jesus spoke to. He said, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The question is never the insufficiency of the light. The question is, is it in you? Because if it is, it's going to be hunting down the darkness and shining bright and revealing sin and and winnowing out the evil and the corruption. It is light. It is life. And it is only in Jesus Christ. Hmm. Now, I was trying to figure out how to break this sermon apart and I just couldn't do it. So I, I kept it all together because this builds out all of the warning that Jesus has just given. And it, it does so with a a very specific blade. I wanna just say before we read these verses that when Jesus speaks this way, he speaks this way in love, in grace. He is giving a gift to the people that he's speaking to. Sometimes you have to be blunt. Sometimes you've got to address things in clarity and, and with force. Jesus never sins in this. It is perfect love that speaks these words and we've got to learn from this with great care because none of us are Jesus. But there's a time to warn with force and there's a time to receive warning with force and really be introspective and say, wow, is there something in here that is not what it ought to be? Let's hear the words of Jesus. This is the gift of warning and woe. Verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. <laughs> oh, who's trapping who? Okay, Jesus agrees to go and have uh, dinner or lunch with the, the Pharisees. He goes in. This is a gracious act. These people have been hostile to him, and even in the face of that, he's going in. He's going to engage. He's going to sit down. He's going to spend time with them. Now he goes in, and his hands are already clean. This is not an issue of hygiene here. Their problem is not that Jesus has dirty hands. Their problem is that he did not follow the high highfalutin process of purification rituals that they had drummed up over years of tradition, not biblically commanded, but traditionally practiced. You have to get the water, and you have to hold your hand out, and you pour three times on your right hand, and three times on your left hand, and then before you dry your hands, you have to say the prayer. And then you draw your hands, and then you are spiritually prepared to receive the meal. Jesus doesn't do this. No. There are times that I find this so refreshing. I, I just feel like there are times in, in church that we just got to kind of remind ourselves, there, it, it's easy to, to, to create sacred cows, right? Well, this is how we always do it. Well, Why? Well, because for a hundred years, that's the way we've done it. Yeah, but why? Jesus, your hands aren't clean. Actually, they are. They're really clean. Let's eat. How dare he? Jesus grills the sacred cow of all their heaped up tradition and, and this, and you've got to do this, and this. It's a bunch of hogwash, he says. Let's eat. I find that refreshing. Stick with the word. What does the word of God command us to do? And let's not build out thousands and thousands of all of these things you've got to do beyond that. What's the point? Well, they're offended. And the meal hasn't even started. Just wait. Jesus did not forget. This is purposeful. And then he begins to speak. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Okay. Um, You know, the people who are preparing to serve the meal, they stop. All of a sudden, all conversations stop. Jesus is confronting The toxic, suicidal nature of moralistic performance religion. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Oh, by the way, who was that? Me! Did you think about that? The Father created all things through the Son. Who was the one that made all things? He's at the table. Give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Wow. Wow. The Pharisees were known for all of their tithes and their, their attention to detail. And that, friends, the Pharisees were spectacular in their discipline and obedience. The problem is, is that they focused only on the outside, not on the inside. I brought with me my favorite coffee mug today. I got this coffee mug as a gift from my parents in 1994. 25 years of coffee. I clean it. Every time I enjoy coffee on the outside, I wash it like crazy. It's amazing. It's immaculate shape, actually. It's clean as can be. But imagine how crazy it would be if I never, ever washed the inside. Can you see in there? Now, let's say I have you over to my house, and I heat up the tea. Or the coffee, I get you the best coffee. I pour it in this mug. And for 25 years, it has never been washed out. And I hand it to you to bless you. And you look in and you see roots growing. (laughs) And dirt, there may be some things crawling in there. It's foolish to polish the outside and ignore the inside. Friends, that's what religion is. That's what religion is. It's all about doing things. It's the exterior. That's why it's so boastful and prideful. It puffs people up. Oh, I feel good about myself. I did good things. But where's your heart? Where's the love? The compassion? Where's justice? Where's confession of sin? Where's obedience? Where's obedience? Reminds me of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7b. uh, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus was ruthlessly focused on driving a people who was so conditioned, they were so conditioned to, to polish the outside of the cup, and he kept saying, The inside, guys. It's the inside. Don't you realize? Hmm. The first woe is given. He gives three woes. Woe, woe, woe to the Pharisees. When I think that, I think if I'm riding a horse, by the third woe, that horse should be stopped. That wasn't always the case for me growing up. Uh, that's why I don't ride horses anymore. But three woes he blesses these men with as he blasts them to break out this hard hearted, false mirage of religion. Here's the second woe Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The synagogue would often have uh, the, the seats that were closest to the Torah scroll, okay? Those were the seats of renown. And even places like uh, in Chorazin, when we visited, we saw this. It was the Moses seat, as some call it. It was the, the, the uppity seat. If you were really impressive, you would sit here next to the scroll in the front so everybody could see you. Have you ever been to a church where they have those thrones on stage? And, oh, I'm so glad we don't do that here. Thank you. That would drive me nuts. But kind of like that, like you sit on the throne and cross your legs. Some of the, uh, of the uh, synagogues had entire benches like this. And the Pharisees would file in and move out the commoners and the lesser thans and the, the unholy so that they, the righteous, could sit in view of all of the others. In the marketplace, their robes, their train, they would be moving through, greetings, greetings. This lofty arrogance, this air of, oh, thank you that I'm not like that poor, miserable wretch. I am righteous because I tithed mint and rue and herb. Jesus is not impressed. I hmm. wonder, as the meal is going, how far into this meal did they get? You know, did he ever get the bread, or did, was it just like, that's it? Woe to you, the third woe. For you, you Pharisees, you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This was tremendously direct. He calls these Pharisees unmarked graves. So in this day, it was so important to mark the graves where you buried a dead body because to cross over that place was immediately to be counted as unclean. Now, if you're walking through a field and there's an unmarked grave, you can all of a sudden be made unclean and totally not know it. He says, you Pharisees, you, you're making people unclean. And, and they think that they're being made clean as they follow in your example. You're like unmarked graves. Wow. Well, there's three woes down. At this point, I love this, this little exchange. This is fascinating. One of the lawyers, right? He, you could just see him over there. Uh, huh, Jesus Maybe, maybe he was just trying to be like, oh man, someone has to say something. He's really making these people mad. Uh, the, one of the scribes, okay, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. the you know, scribes were the guys who worked with the, the word. They were the very astute, careful uh, word people. They copied the scrolls. They were very specific, very precise. Uh, they served in that role. They were all Pharisees, but they were specifically functioning in the role of scribe. And uh, they were referred to also as lawyers. One of the lawyers answered him, "Teacher,? Uh, teacher. Uh, in saying these things, you're also insulting us." Jesus looks his direction. And he says, "Woe to you lawyers also." And all the scribes put down their pens, "Wait, what?" For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You don't lift a finger to carry the burdens that you're heaping on the backs of others. Woe to you for doing this. Reminds me of Jesus. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my teaching, my my instruction, take this upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find a rest for your souls. My yoke is light, it's easy. My burden is light. Compared to the, the carrying of all of this insanity that the scribes and Pharisees had heaped upon the people, Jesus was, was like lifting the burden. Hmm. He's not done. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so your witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. It's a mind-blowing statement for Jesus to make. From the blood of Abel... To the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Wow. The blood of all of the prophets. Now, these scribes, they spent a lot of time dressing up and, and, and attempting to honor the prophets. They felt bad about how their forefathers had murdered them all. Here's what they weren't doing when they were dressing up their graves obeying them, hearing their words and repenting of their sins, softening their hearts and following the Lord. They were just dressing up graves. And Jesus says, you're no different than your fathers. They killed them. You make a big deal about their graves. You're celebrating their death just as they were. And then he says, those people who are hearing Jesus say this at this time, he he is going to pour out this Unique judgment on those who heard this. This is a temporary judgment, but tens of thousands of people would perish answering for the death of the prophets. And you think the apostles who were coming, the early launch of the church, how much judgment was stored up in the opposition of the launch of the church. Serious consequences for hardness of heart. Responsibility something that follows revelation these people heard jesus teach and they were responsible uniquely but so are we friends so are we to whom much is given much will be required now the final woe woe to you lawyers you have taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter yourself and you hindered those who were entering you think of this, people coming in to the kingdom, and here they come, and they're, and they're coming, and here's the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers, and they're like, no, 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 that's not right. He threw that demon out in the power of Satan. And they stop, and they say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I, I'm sorry, I, I, it, it, sure, right? Think of the, the impediment that they were opposing the king of kings. They are blind guides leading the blind. They've hijacked the scriptures, and Jesus called them out. How would they respond? Well, the final verse. As he went away from there, I still don't know if they ate, right? You don't even know how the meal went. They might have just said, that's it, you're gone, out, out. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him. That's a very specific word. They were were hating him. They, They opposed him. They wanted to trap him. They pressed him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. That leads us to the cross eventually. Oh, that they would have received the warning and soften their hearts, opened their eyes, and turned. But they did not. They did not. Our response this morning, what will it be? Are you here this morning and you have heard the warning, be careful lest the light in you be darkness? Are you concerned that you may be looking to your own works? your own performance as the basis of your confidence in being accepted by God. If that is a concern, it is very possible that the light that you think is in you is not light at all, it's dark. I'll tell you the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. We sing this song, and it's so perfect out of this text. In Christ alone, my hope is found he is my light, my strength, my song. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, in Christ alone. Trust Him. Look to Him. Fall down before Him. Bend your knee. Make Him your Savior, your Lord, your King. And you will know the light of life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we celebrate the good news that those who dwell in darkness can become light through Jesus Christ. We thank you that, that once we who only knew darkness, stumbling around in the dark and and fooling ourselves to think that somehow we were going to be okay or be good enough. We thank you, Lord, that you opened our eyes to see the light, the glory of God in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. We celebrate His light. We, we celebrate this life that we know as our eye beholds Him from the heart, and we are changed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we long for the day when He alone will be our light. There will be no sun, but the Lord will light our world. He's our lamp. We pray, Father, as we walk through this week that You would light our path, that that the light in us would in fact be Christ and that He would be all in all, that He would be our hope alone, our joy, our song, our strength, in Christ alone, O oh Lord, make this true of everyone here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.